GPS, Greatest Hits of the Puget Sound Podcast, where we revisit our conversations with members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. I'm Elena Becker, and today we're revisiting my conversation with Carrie Woods, an assistant professor of biology at Puget Sound. This conversation was recorded and produced by Moonyard Studio in October 2019, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Carrie, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. This is great. Will you just kick things off by um, explaining for folks that are, have not met you or are not familiar with your work? You're a biologist. Mm-hmm. What What do you do within that big broad category? Right. So I study plants. I'm a plant ecologist. Some people say field biologist, community ecologist. There's a lot of terms you can use to describe me, um, but I love plants, and I love studying the community of plants. Um, the biggest questions that drive me as a scientist are the role that habitat plays in structuring communities, and I do this in multiple ways in multiple places. So I worked predominantly in my during my dissertation in tropical canopies, looking at these amazing plants, epiphytes, orchids, bromeliads, ferns, and how they're partitioning the the structural complexity of the canopy, a crown, a single tree crown. Um, so just sitting up in those trees, oh my gosh, it's amazing. You can see the difference in microclimate from the inside to the outside. You're in the tropical rainforest, and what do you think? You think you're going to burn because it's hot and sunny all right. the time. But there you are in the top tree, which is an emergency tree that goes above the canopy and you're in the shade and you're cool, (laughs) right? So there's this whole crown above you. And then you look in the other crown and you see these small branches covered in sunlight. It's dry. So it's literally an extreme change in habitat at a small scale. I think that's why canopies have just continued to fascinate me because of what drives me as a scientist and seeing that at such a small scale. So now I'm working um, in temperate crowns and seeing the similar patterns, which is really neat. So the studies that I do are looking at um, communities of plants all over the world and how factors influence their distribution. And how did you first find out that that was what you wanted to do? Have you always been a tree climber? No, that's a great question. Um, So I actually stumbled through undergrad a lot, not really knowing what I wanted to do. (laughs) The only single thing that kept me focused was the movie Medicine Man. Have you heard Mm -mm. of that movie with Sean Connery? I sure have not. (laughs) 1992, um, I was 15 years old, and I was going to be a rock musician. That was my point. I had bands. I was going to sing. And I actually had a couple record contracts set up. And then I saw this movie and I went, oh, my God, could I be the Sean Connery of the world? Could I actually do that? So that was that became my guiding light. And my um, high school biology teacher said, go into biochemistry. Hmm. He knew about the medicine man dream. So then I took biochem and I realized, OK, this is good for pharmaceutical industry, but maybe not for what I want to do, get in the tree tropical canopy. Right. Um, so I, was, I actually changed my major to ecology, but I minored in biochemistry because I loved it. Mm-hmm. My life is like a story of things that just all line up. Um, So (laughs) how I got there was I finished my degree and I got a job with a woman working up in the boreal forest doing nutrients of soils. And just for folks who don't know, which includes me, a boreal forest is? Oh, yeah, the taiga. That's the northern forest of Canada, Russia, Mongolia, um, and Siberia. Got it. Yeah. So the big, vast expanse of forest up there that no one really knows about. Right. (laughs) As it turns out. Right. (laughs) 
Um, so I went up there with this woman who was just so inspiring, and she taught me soil chemistry and all this all this stuff that I didn't learn in undergrad, right? It was just hands-on experience. I made no money. It was just mm-hmm. a tech job. And she sent me a link to a job in Costa Rica climbing trees and studying canopy communities. Holy smokes. I mean, talk about a link. I was like, oh, my God. So yeah. obviously I applied. I was number 170 <laughs> to apply, and I got it. Why? Because I had the chemistry experience. Wow. So this, there's this idea right now that small bio and big bio are separate things. I didn't even understand that. I had ecology and biochemistry. So I was looking across the spectrum, and gosh, it got me so far. So it was a postdoc who was studying canopy communities, and I got to go there in 2004 when I was 24. I just dated myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I climbed a tree for the first time. She taught me how to climb. I'm in Costa Rica, up a tree, and it was... I'll never forget that moment. It was like, oh, my God, my medicine man dream came true. Yeah. This happened. Yeah. Holy cow. And I'm just – I just sat in that for a long time just taking it all in. And as I sat, I started looking around and seeing, wow, there are so many species, structural complexity, but they all look different and mm. they're all found in different places. Right. That single thought basically drove me to all the way to my PhD. It took me 16 years to answer that question, but I answered it. And Maybe not, not 16. To- Maybe more like eight. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask you to do a terrible thing and summarize 18 years of work <laughs> in a couple minutes. But what's the answer to that question in broad strokes? Totally simple. Um, the answer is the structural complexity that I witnessed sitting up there absolutely defines where these species are found. Hmm. So there are some species specialized to the inner crown where it's shady and cool, where you don't get sunburn. Right. Um, and there's species specialized to the outer crown where it's really hot and sunny. It's unbelievable. And then there's also this soil that develops. So plants up there start decomposing and forming their own substrate. Hmm. No one knows how it forms. There's a lot of thought. I have a lot of ideas about it. That's also going to drive me the rest of my career to figure that yeah. out. Um, but just that distribution of soil is a change in substrate. So some species rely on that soil and they need it, and it's only found in certain spots. So overall, I found support for the idea that, yes, there's steep gradients from one, like sitting in the crown to four meters out that are steeper than kilometers across the forest. Wow. Because what's crazy is you find these large emergent trees of one species I studied, and I can go kilometers across the forest and find the exact same size range of tree and find the exact same species there. Hmm. Like so little variation, yet the small trees, so much variation. You never know what you're going to find. You're like, oh, it's this species, that species. So there's predictability as the trees get bigger. Oh, That's so interesting. Right? And is that just because a big tree can host a lot of little mini ecosystems like that? You got it. Structural complexity increases with the tree crown. Um, And then I wrote a model of epiphyte succession because of that work. Um, And when I moved here, I was like, okay. I want to continue climbing trees and studying epiphytes because they fascinate me, they drive me, they build my soul. Um, And I realized the temperate rainforest was a four and a half hour drive away. Right. Um, My spouse is brilliant. He knows how my brain works. So we we drove all the way from central New York to here in five days. We get here and he's like, okay, let's go to the temperate rainforest. And I was like, what are you talking about? We are not getting back in the car. (laughs) He's like, you need to see it. You'll build ideas. So we drove out there and I'm walking through the forest and I did the whole Hall of Mosses walk. And I see these nurse logs and I'm thinking, wow, this is fascinating. There's a lot of variation here. I don't Mm. think all nurse logs are created equal. I also looked at the crown and I was, I saw the mosses. I don't know my mosses. I didn't at that moment. I know now. Yeah. Um, but I started looking and I said, wow, yeah, there are different mosses in different areas of the crown. Hmm. It could be that my ideas in the tropics apply here. So those wow. observations basically are what I've been chasing since I got here. And you at one point said the phrase, climb a tree. <laughs> yeah. Is that literally... 
do you scramble up a tree to do we this? use ropes. We use ropes and a harness, and and it's really easy, actually. Is I can it take really? Anybody. I can take anybody. I can show you in about five minutes and get you up a tree within the hour. And we're talking like obviously a big tree. I mean, big how tree. high or eighty to a hundred feet? Holy yeah. cow! <laughs> I know. You you said that pretty casually. But I know. <laughs> eighty to a hundred feet up a tree is really yeah, that's a few it's stories. Like, yeah. It's pretty intense. Yeah, that's a pretty big building. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. I know because I guess I've been doing it for so long. It's just the goal is not it's not it's not like I'm conquering a tree and that's the thing I, I talk. It's yeah. actually the, the community of being up there. Right. Right. It's a, it's a different mindset, actually. Climbing a tree versus climbing rocks, climbing a mountain, those things you conquer mm. and they don't have a soul. They don't have energy. They're just rocks. Right. You just look at them a certain way. A tree is a living thing. Mm. So you're climbing a living thing. It is it is actually a really humbling experience. And how much of your work actually happens 80 and 100 feet up in the air in a tree versus on the ground? Good question. So depends on the system. In this system, everything has to be done in the tree. Yeah. Because we're looking at mosses. And you need to have eyes an inch away to identify. Right. <laughs> or like a foot at least. Um, in the tropics, I could use ground surveys where I could use my binoculars. I have really strong neck muscles. Because <laughs> From <of> looking up. <laughs> I could look up for days. So looking at those, you can see a plant. You can identify it and say that is this bromeliad species, that is that fern species from far away. In the moss land, nope, you can't. You have to be right there. So we have to get access to those branches. So most of the, the survey work happens in the tree. And it's you and some other people, many other people? Yeah, several students. So I've had, um, I actually just published my first paper with undergraduates from Puget Sound. Oh, my goodness. Yep, two years of research, 2016, 2017, um, surveying these trees. That was the first survey that people have actually looked at the trees and looked at these epiphytes before, but not to the extent that we did. So we looked at the entire crown, all the the, the factors that could govern that. So branch size, moss depth, um, light, microclimate, like uh, temperature, relative humidity. We measured all of that and tried to see the factors that, that govern the distribution. Without really at all um, really knowing what that means, that feels to me like a huge amount of work to accomplish in two years. Yeah, I, <laughs> I also had a massive team. So the first summer I had four undergrads come out there with me. Okay. The second summer I had four undergrads come out there with me. So the undergraduate students really are what make your career at, at, a, at when you're doing field research like this. There's no way I could do it without them. You don't want to climb alone. Um, you, yeah, it's a it's a safety thing, but it's also just fun. Yeah. It is super cool to watch someone just break through whatever th limitations they put on themselves yeah. in a tree. Because this hmm. happens all the time. I get students, oh, I can't climb or I'm afraid of heights, but I want to do it anyway. And they get up there and they transform. They're confidence soars. They, oh, I can actually do this, which means I can do anything. And it's incredible to watch that. When you are out there with students, what does that sort of look like? On a day-to-day -day basis, are you driving out and back every day? Do you go out for chunks of time? Good question. Um, so we wake up. We we generally stay at a research station out there in Forks. Mm -hmm. So we wake up. We have our breakfast. We get in the truck. We drive to the site, which is not very far. It's just down the whole road. Um, and we park and we walk probably about 100 feet, 200 feet. It's only a 10-minute walk to our giant maple trees in this beautiful grove. And if you've done the Hall of Mosses or you know the Hall of Mosses, we have our own private Hall of Mosses. <laughs> 
and you can walk right to the Ho River, and we have access to the Ho River. It is beautiful. So we go, we set up a tarp, we pull out all our gear, we throw, we have lines in the trees that I've put with um, giant slingshot. <laughs> it's always like, is that really how you do, how it? You do yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a seven foot slingshot, and you launch a little bag of sand with a line attached to it, and you get a line in a tree, and once over the, a branch, over a branch, yeah. yep, and you find a safe spot, and then you tie a rope to the other end, and you pull the rope up, mm-hmm. and then you anchor one side of the rope you put your gear on and you climb up one side and climb back down that's <laughs> just the mental image i have of this is making me so happy <laughs> above great. all these people getting up in trees i know and actually at one point we had three students in a tree at the same time which is pretty cool in the same tree in the same tree that's actually pre- that's it was a tree community right like and so they're talking lovely. to each other and helping each other and yeah just pushing boundaries cuz their their physical limits too there was a student who started with me who was so confident cuz he had climbed rocks so he was a right. rock climber for years and he got halfway up the tree and said just got really quiet and I was like are you, do you need to come down do you need and he was like yeah I do so one of the things I also say when we climb trees there's no shame you have to be honest it's safer for everyone so we do not judge there is absolutely no judgment and I think often for people of that age it's it's hard to be in a space where there is no judgment yeah they're always comparing themselves with everyone else and you know just this competition for I gotta get a better grade or whatever it is um, and that it's this this opportunity provides none of that we do not hmm. compete we just we all share the work together and we all work on each other's projects together and we all help each other and it's a really good community to be a part of do you think that happens organically because of the nature of the work? Or? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about being in the forest that just humbles you, especially being amidst giants. So you walk in there with any preconceived notions of what your abilities are and you immediately are humbled. <laughs> you try, try walking a straight line in the Ho Rainforest. You will go 10 feet before you hit a, you know, a three meter nurse log. Right. How do you get over that? It's taller than you, right? Do you go under? Do you go around? So you're troubleshooting. And you're, you're facing these challenges. And then you figure it out as a group. Okay, you hold me and I'll hold you and we'll get over <laughs> together. So we figure it out. And I think that is so just – it gives us a shared experience. And so we it's kind of like being in the trenches together. Mm. You really form a relationship with people when you're in the trenches together. So, <laughs> One of my favorite lenses anybody ever put on research experiences for me when I was an undergrad is somebody one time said to me – I had come back from my first ever independent – ethnographic project cool um very cool (laughs) yeah um and i did a terrible job right like it was the first one i'd ever done i was i was not good at it the theory was very different to the actual practice and i came back and was talking to um an anthropologist about it and said you know i I don't i did a terrible job um and she said well did you learn anything Mm mm-hmm yeah, right. The, the, the next time I do this, I'm going to do these six things differently. And right. I learned something about who I am and how I work in the space and how to set myself up for success differently. Yes, and awesome. she said, well, that's a productive failure. Oh, and that that's has, a good word. I love it. Oh, what a good sentence. Yeah. And that feels so genuine to me when you're able to be in the space where you can fail in a way where it's not a referendum on you. Right. Right. That's so liberating. Yes, isn't it? And actually, I tell students all the time, um, in ecology, we have independent projects. And students will come with these great ideas, but they're so left field. Right. Like, I want to see how plants feel. or well, And I'm like, okay. you know. And yeah. every single time they've come to me, 
I try to find a way to make it happen. Mm. The reason is it's low risk. If it doesn't work, you're not going to lose the grade. The grade is on how you write and how you right. present whatever data you get. It's not about the quality of the data you collect. Sure. I mean, that has, obviously, if there's no replication, right. that's a problem. Right. But there's just there's this one student um, who wanted to go and snorkel and look at eelgrass. And it was kind of, you know, maybe not the best idea. We're in the, the time of the year when maybe that's going to happen at nighttime. And anyways, <laughs> I made it happen. I was like, just go for it. Just see what you get. And he discovered, he just got intimate with the eelgrass out there. He learned so much about the eelgrass. He jumped into Joel Elliott's lab and ended up doing eelgrass research for the rest of his time here. Wow. Because he connected. He connected. He saw something. He saw a pattern. And he wanted to keep working on it. And it was just, wow, that was a blip. It was a blip of a moment in a class where he had the opportunity to do whatever he wanted. And I made it happen. I was so I, – so I love that role in ecology because mm. I can go, okay, what is your dream project? Let's see if we can make that happen. Hey there. I'm Ryan Del Rosario, Assistant Director of Admission and School of Music and Mission Coordinator. I'm checking in to make sure you know about Puget Sound's conservatory-style school of music. Puget Sound students can major or minor in music performance, music education, music business, and composition. Non-majors can take music classes, play in our ensembles, and even be eligible for scholarship. Visit pugetsound.edu/music to find out more. But for now, back to the show. One of the things that I love about getting to do this podcast is I start to see themes come up in people's stories. Ah, interesting. And one of the major themes, especially from students, has been the thing that it turns out that I love was a surprise, (laughs) was something I knew nothing about, didn't think I could do, didn't know was possible. And often the um, plot arc of this (laughs) is somebody with some knowledge invested in me said, yeah, you can do that eelgrass project. Right. Or did you know that there's this thing called fill in the blank right right and and you can go immerse yourself in that and then somebody's life opens up and takes off right oh and it's so fun to work at an institution where undergrads are your main interaction with students they're they're so excited and wide open and just that raw energy of i want to explore i Mm -hmm. want to discover and i still have that yeah totally still have that i also the other thing i love about my students is i empower them to say Let's stop for a moment. Hmm. So we, I had this one student, and this has changed my lab's understanding of the, of the forest. It was really a, a pivotal moment, and it was because I empowered her to have it. So she was, she was in my ecology class, and every time I asked her a question, she's like, I don't know. Ask the guy beside me. And I'm hmm. like, what? And, so she, and she kept answering, and then this, this male student beside her would say something, and he, she would say, oh, he's right. He's right. I'm like, oh, my God. Actually, Katie, you're right. It was Katie. I let it. Um, so <laughs> I went to Katie and said, you need to join my lab because I think you have a lot of ideas. I think you have a lot of insight. Um, So through the process of a a couple summers of research, she went out there and had this whole idea. We had all these boxes, all this plan, and she went out there and went, hold on. I don't think this is getting at my question. And I'm like, really? We have all of this stuff. <laughs> right. We're ready to go. Okay, I say. And I had to, she hold, held me to it. She's like, you say I can always change my mind. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so she wandered around for an hour and came back and said, I think this is the way to answer the question. She collected data, and that has defined a model of forest succession that we now have 
from that the temperate rainforest that I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Wow. I was like, oh. so to get to the point where students are telling me and offering me these new insights, that is just wonderful. That's what I aim for. And my students are so great because they get so invested. Well, and in some ways, I think it is fairly unique to a place like Puget Sound where you sort of get the holism of an education to have professors who um, – one, feel like there's sort of a reciprocal relationship, but two, are able and willing to invest in the way that you just described, to right. look around your classroom and say, I can see that you are going to benefit enormously from this, even though you're not raising your hand and asking me for it. Right, right. And, and that's a big one. That's hard to do, too. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, well, I bet to stand at the front of a room at the start of a semester and be like, which of you? Yeah, right. Yeah. So actually, what I, I, I work really hard on having an inclusive and equitable classroom. Mm. And the first thing I start off, and I learned this from Amy Riken in education, um, I ask all the students to write down their name, their personal pronouns, something they're excited about, something they're nervous about, and something else they think I should know. Mm. And that last part is wide open. Sometimes I say, I love dogs. My dog dog's name is this and I have two cats or whatever. But sometimes they say, you know, I'm really shy and I, I don't participate in class a lot or I have anxiety mm-hmm. or I have this, 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 whatever it is. I get to learn about something about that student and the class as a whole. So if 90% of the students tell me they're shy, I'm not going to try to get dialogue out of them right. from just someone share their answer because 90% of the students aren't going to contribute. So I'd modify the class based on that, those, that feedback. And if I have 90% saying I'm not going to talk, I get them to talk to each other. Right. <laughs> talk to your neighbor. Have those think-pair-share moments. So I facilitate the dialogue in different ways. And also, whenever we have paper discussions, I see if I see someone sort of taking over, I'll mm-hmm. come over and say, you know, this is an opportunity for those who are not as comfortable as others talking in front of the whole class to share. So just make sure everyone says everyone has a voice here. And if you've been speaking a lot, then maybe quiet down a bit and, and think about your role as a facilitator mm-hmm. rather than the one who knows everything, that kind of thing. And it works. I'm really working hard on that because I think I still have that issue <laughs> where some students just know everything and yeah. you know, and so it's like, let's let's try compassion. Let's try mm-hmm. kindness a little bit. So do you notice the opportunities for you as an instructor changing from classroom to classroom and semester to semester? Or are there sort of like archetypes <laughs> that good. you run into? Yeah, good question. Um, it totally differs based on the year of the student. Hmm. Um, so first year, there's a nervousness because it's an intro bio class yeah. and it seems a lot. And so there's a lot of me going, you can do this. It's okay. Let's go through it a million times. And ecology is is more the opportunity of the independent project is mm-hmm. scary. The statistics is scary. It's not necessarily college is scary right? because you're a second year or third year. Yeah. By the time I get to my upper division electives, those students are, are in senioritis is what I call, where they're <laughs> in the fall. It's like, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm engaging and I'm chatting and so much conversation. But in the spring semester, it's a whole different ballgame. There's worry and concern about where they're going to go. So the concerns are fascinating to me because I remember those moments. I remember yeah. going through first, second, third, fourth year, and those worries change. Mm-hmm. And so recognizing that, that it's still a thing and they're still there, <laughs> and I'm like, I remember where you're at. So I had a field botany class in the spring, and I took them on a field trip to the hoe. We went to the, the field station, and we all got around in the evening and had dinner and talked about life and talked mm-hmm. about grad school and jobs, maybe a gap year. And it was just, wow, what a fun conversation to have. And they had so many questions. 
questions. And we went pretty late. We went to about midnight having questions about this. Now I have a toddler. I haven't stayed up to midnight in a long time. <laughs> but it was struggle. But I was like, okay, this is what's needed. I'll rally. And I probably wouldn't have had that those conversations with a second-year class, right? It's just yeah. different. So I don't know if that was the, answering your yeah, question. Yeah, very but, much so. Okay. And now I'm wondering, too— did you expect when you started your career, when you started your graduate degree, did you expect that these would be considerations of your career and your profession? Not at all. Yeah. When you go to grad school, everyone says, research one school, research one school, big school, and that's what they push on you. And, and that was... th- that's where you should go in your career. Exactly. Yeah. So finish grad school, go to a big research school, um, get PhDs and postdocs and grad students. And the undergrads are just minor. So don't worry about teaching. Yeah. That, that'll fall out. But the problem was I couldn't help myself. I was TAing as a grad student, and I loved it so much. And I, I realized it was my relatability. Like I could relate to students and say, I get it. I know exactly where you are. Right. This, is, this is actually kind of sucky what you're doing right now, but let's work through it together. And I just found so much reward. And my, my advisor actually was really supportive, but I had other committee members that weren't. So mm. there was this, this struggle like, well, you should be doing research for your PhD. You shouldn't be putting focus on teaching. I just couldn't help myself. Yeah. So, and I didn't, I still didn't even know what liberal arts colleges were or Mm. small undergraduate because I'm from Canada and we don't have them there really. We have a couple, but it's not like it's the thing you do. Yeah. There's only, you know, so many people. (laughs) Right. There's (laughs) only so many schools. The U.S. is 10 times the population and 10 times the schools. So um, it was actually during grad school, I'd go down to Costa Rica and I'd see these undergrads with their professors coming down from Occidental College and Dominguez Hills. And so I was going, okay, wait, why are the professors down here? This is mm. this is cool. I want to do that. What is this? So I started to learn about the model, and I also became like a pseudo-mentor, accidental mentor, mentor <laughs> is what I say, to all the students there because they'd go, oh, my God, I'm so lost. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, okay, come with me. Let's have a conversation. So I was mentoring all the time, undergraduates and helping and teaching all through grad school. And it wasn't until after that I honed in, oh, this could be a job for me. I think this is where I want to go. And did you then look intentionally for teaching jobs? I did. Yeah. Visiting assistant professorships. And one at Colgate opened up where I have colleagues that work there that I've worked with for years. Um, The woman who brought me to Costa Rica was at Mm. Colgate. And a visiting assistant uh, professor position opened up and I got it. And I think part of it was she knew me. So there was a voice in the room that vouched for me. Um, But it was two years and I dove right in and I just loved it. And it was after that that I'm like, okay, this is this is what I need to do. And one of the things that we're sort of getting at here, I want to be careful because there are lots of very talented teachers at R1 big institutions. Oh, for sure. But I do think a lot of the people who really love teaching find their way to institutions like Puget Sound because yeah. of the exact phenomena that right? you've described. And also what's really sad is, yeah, I have a colleague who is an amazing teacher and ended up at a big school and it's almost penalized. She's almost penalized for the amount of effort she puts into teaching. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. It's not that you can't be an excellent teacher at a big research one. In fact, I think you should be. You should yeah. aim to that. Um, the thing is about what gets you promotion and tenure. It's different, right? It's your how many NSF grants and how many papers you publish. So it's just different different rules. Right. At a school like this, teaching is number one. So you're you, and I said that I remember in grad school, I was like, I want to be rewarded for the effort I put into teaching because I want to teach and I'm going to put effort right. no matter what. I cannot help myself. Right. It's going to happen. Um, and I don't want to be penalized for that. And so every I did have a, a job interview at a big research one school. And that was one of my first questions. And sure enough, they're like, no, we don't value teaching. We and value said it. That. But, they were honest about it. Yep. Yeah. And I said, OK, well, then I'm honest about it, too. I don't want this job. Yeah. Good for you. That's boy. Is that a hard thing to do? <laughs> yeah. Looking at the job market, I was like, no, yeah. don't worry. 
I said, you know what? We can continue with the interview, but I'm not going to take the job. FYI. Yeah. <laughs> it was very funny. But what a remarkable thing to do also. I mean, to have gotten to know yourself well enough to be able to have laid out really clearly, these are my priorities. These are the things that I want. It's and these easy. are the things I'm not willing to do. It's it, That's hard. That's hard. That's, that's very a hard. lifetime goal oh. for everybody. Yep. I'm still doing it. Okay. Yeah. What You know, as a mom now, it's okay. What? Yeah. It, it's really tough. It's really tough. And I think self-reflection is huge. It's huge. Um, I just started adding more self-reflection into um, my classes. Mm. Right. And and I'm going to keep doing that. I do it with my research students. So at the end of the summer, I say, I want you to write an essay. How did it go? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about science? Did you learn that anything you learned and have that self-reflection? Because that's important. And I think I always just did that. And I, I really valued it. Right. Yeah. And I got a lot of benefits from it as well. So. And one of the things that I think about the structure of college writ large is that in some ways it feels so teleological. It feels like you're going along a line with an inevitable goal that it's easy to forget that you have agency and to stop and think about what do I like? What do I want? What do I care about? What experiences are, are actually meaningful to me? Well said. I call that ownership. So, And I see that changing, mm. right? In first year, it's, it's kind of like the same sort of pattern you see in a PhD. You start off first year undergrad, first year PhD going, oh my God, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I made it here. And you're, you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, yeah. right? You're young, you're excited. And PhD, first year, you feel like a small fish in a giant pond because right. you're like, I don't know anything. Everyone's so smart. And then you, <laughs> you get to your second year and third year and you start to blame other people. You blame your parents, you blame society, you blame your professors, you blame <laughs> whatever. It's everyone else's fault. I'm not doing well because everyone else. And that, think about that. That's kind of like the teenage years where you're like, <laughs> <laughs> it's everyone else's fault. The world is problematic. And then you get to more of an adult stage. You start to own it. You start to realize, okay, wait, I chose this. I'm here for me. So regardless of all these external things, it's internal. It's, right. I'm here for because I wanted to be here. So whenever I have students really struggling, often I see this in sophomore year, and they're like, you know, I kind of just want to bail out and go surfing in Costa Rica. <laughs> and I said, then bail out and go surfing in Costa Rica. And they look at me like, what? Because nobody has ever said that to them before. Right. They're like, you're telling yeah. me to drop out? I'm like, if that's what your truth is, if that's what you need to do, then yes. Oh, I just said that on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but what happens is I tell them, go reflect about that. Because the truth of the matter is, if you chose this, you're you're invested in your education. Right. You want to learn. And so every single time that's happened, a student will go aside. They'll think about it, think about it, come back and say, yeah, I'd get bored. I'm like, yeah, right. absolutely. You get bored after two months. Yes, your first two months would be amazing and you'd be free and you have all this freedom and you can do whatever you want. There's no time limitation. There's no essays to do. But, <laughs> hey, you're bored right. because you need more. You chose this for a reason. And so often to push them into ownership is the moment that they go, I, I, I'm here for me and I can do it. And you just see they're inspired. Right. And then they succeed. And then they're, yeah, their successes they own. Is that how you think of your role as a professor? Is that part of it? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if that is a role I see myself as a professor. I just think as a human. Mm. <laughs> Any young person I talk to, yeah. I, regardless of what I do, I think I would do this even if I worked at Starbucks. Right. I'd find, you know, people that are younger and say, how are you, what are you deciding in your life? So I, I actually think that this is what I would do no matter what I did. And, and, and to put that on as a, a mentoring role, I think there is a, the expectation that we mentor mm -hmm. for sure. But I don't think that because I'm a professor, I should do that. I right. think it happens organically. But, yeah, if I was anything, 
yeah, if I if I owned a Dairy Queen, which was my dream at 16, <laughs> um, I would do the same thing. <laughs> all of our conversations by asking everybody the same four questions. Right. Question number one is, what's your favorite place on campus? I thought about this one a lot. Um, my son goes to kinder music, music class on Saturday mornings, mm. and we end up walking outside of Schneebeck, either the back or the front, and wander in between the gardens, in between Schneebeck and, and Thompson. Right. And then we go through the Presence Wood, and, and I think literally that whole area, the gardens and the Presence Woods and just the natural landscaping there. And we explore plants and we look at bugs, and that mm. space <laughs> is my happy place. Just walking amidst the plants, that's where I want to be, so... What are you reading right now? Um, the Overstory by Richard Powers. Yeah, I'm about halfway through. It is unbelievable. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. Best place to eat in Tacoma? I Okay, so I thought about this one too. It depends on what your, <laughs> your state of life is. Um, <laughs> so what is, okay, the place on 26 and Alder. Yes, Cook's Tavern. Cook's Tavern. Okay, so Cook's we go with Finn, my son, because he does really well there. The open space, the music. Sure, the people stuff and, to look at. Right. It's a really good space for children. And the food is consistently good. And they change the menu. So that's one. <laughs> um, if it's just Mark and I, I say Moshi Moshi down in the stadium. Oh, my God. It's so yummy. I went there for the first time yesterday. It's, did you love it? I loved it. Right? Yeah. The ramen. And then Indo right beside. You, you can't go wrong with either of those. So. Lastly, Carrie, what makes Puget Sound special? Yeah, I thought about that too. Um, when I go through interviews, I always go for lunch with students and I always ask them s similar questions. One is, how are there open LGBTQ people in frats and sororities? Mm -hmm. And this was the first institution that were like, yeah, of course. Every other institution was like, no way. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. So there's, there's a student mentality here that just I connect with. There's rawness. There's realness. Puget Sound, I think this area, the Tacoma, Puget Sound breeds that. There's This is the 90s were born here, right? Mm. There's this rawness to people here. So I think it's the student mindset um, and the faculty. I've never felt so heard as a faculty member, mm. especially being junior faculty. Right. I feel like I'm not shamed. I'm not. I'm, I'm encouraged to, to, to do my own thing and explore my own ideas in a way that I've never seen. And there's a collegiality, a kindness among the faculty that I just love it here. So I think it's everyone. Um, and the staff are super supportive, too. Wherever I go, there's always someone to help. Like, it's a really community-based community. Like, it's a really supportive community. So I think that's what makes it so special for me. Carrie Woods, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you to our guest and to you, the listener. You can follow Puget Sound on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. And we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of P.S., the Puget Sound Podcast.